0: Welcome to the Redeemer Coast Podcast. Our prayer is that this message will inspire hope, build your faith, and encourage you for God's purposes for your life. going to cover a few things we've been uh, doing a series on called the call which is about uh, God's exciting purposes for our lives for each of us and we're taking as our foundation scripture uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10 which we just confessed for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which we has he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and today uh, we're going to get around to looking at in conclusion Two things which Jesus told his disciples to do, or one thing to do and one thing to say, if they're going to be impacting on the people around them. And they were to change what they said from their mouth and to change how they looked at the world around them. But I thought I'd start. I read a story uh, a few months ago and I've been listening to a book by this lady. Her name's uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she describes her conversion in April 1999 as a combination of an alien invasion and a train wreck and uh, which is if you're going to mix metaphors there's two good metaphors to mix in April 1999 she finally surrendered her life to Jesus she was at the time a professor of English literature at Cruz University in New York, her major was queer theory. She was in a very happy lesbian relationship. She was uh, a deacon at the Universalist, I think, church, which is a, not a Christian church by any means. And her role, her ministry there, was to welcome and to um, make feel comfortable the gay and homosexual couples to that church. She was a tenured professor. Her life was happy she loved her partner uh, she had grown up a catholic her big impression of christians is that they were mean and they were angry and they were bitter and they were filled with judgment as opposed to her community that she was part of her lesbian community which she found welcoming her house their house were always open for people to come in day and night they would come in wouldn't need to knock but the christians that she knew were angry and so part of, part of her study, which, uh, um, which she was doing, was to write a thesis, she was writing a paper on the uh, right-wing uh, Christians, uh, fundamentalist Christians in the, in the United States of America. And uh, just as part of her research, she's studying up on promise keepers and their attitudes towards uh, homosexuality. So she wrote a, a brief editorial for the local newspaper and she put it in the newspaper and she said the response was overwhelming. Uh, she said she just wished as many people got excited about her thesis, but this little editorial about promise keepers was was just the response. She said overwhelmed her so much so, and she said uh, she was a neatness freak. Her desk was always kept immaculately clean, and she would read uh, all the letters sent to her and then file them. But she got so many letters about this article, about the promise keeters that she decided to have, a, she had to put two boxes on, on her desk. One was fan mail, and the other was hate mail. And they were both, she was just seeing which one, she'd never, she'd cited so much uh, excitement and fans and, and so much hatred at the one time. And then she said she got one letter. It was signed, Pastor Ken Smith, who was uh, almost soon to be retired. He was in his 70s. He was a local pastor at the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Santa Cruz. And she read it. And uh, it was very supportive. It was very uh, compassionate. And yet, at the same time, it didn't criticise her, but it asked her how she'd come to that decision how she came to these these um, opinions that she had what was her worldview what was what was the presuppositions behind this and then it invited her he was genuinely interested he said and it invited her to catch up with him and his wife if she wanted to talk further about it she said I didn't know which box to put it in I didn't know whether that was hate mail or whether that was fan mail. Here was someone that was being really loving to me and generous and respecting my opinions and respecting that I was no fool. I kind of knew what I was talking about. She was a tenured professor, and he wasn't putting me down. He was just asking why I believed that. But then he didn't agree with me, and she said it sat there in the middle of her desk the whole week. She said she put it in the bin two or three times, she said, but it just annoyed her because it wasn't in this file and it wasn't in that file. Anyone like that, I can tell you, it's not me. <laughs> they all go in one file. <laughs> and so she, she kept pulling back out of it. And, and eventually she replied to him and, and arranged to meet. And so he replied back and he said, well, uh, if you want to meet on neutral ground, we could just go to a coffee shop. But if you'd like to come to our place, she said, I was curious to see how Christians lived. I was curious to see how they lived, so I decided to go to to their house for dinner. And she was met at the door by Pastor Ken and his lovely wife, and they brought them in, and she was impressed because he was cooking a vegetarian meal. The things us Christians must go to (laughs) (laughs) sometimes. You know how you tell a vegan? You can tell a vegan, you know that. You know how to tell a vegan? You don't have to, they tell you. But she was cooking a vegetarian lasagna or something like that. And then she was impressed and she could say that he was intelligent. She said and the light, the evening was full of of positive conversation. They asked her about her life and where she'd come from. And she asked them about their life. She said, and and, and she kept waiting to be hammered. She said, and all night I was waiting. She's thinking this guy's got this wet fish under the table who's going to come up and slap me at one stage. But there was a lovely conversation. They were obviously genuinely interested in her. And at the end of the evening, they let her out the door. They said, good night. And they said, we'd love to catch up with you. She said, that would be nice. She kept waiting for the hook, kept waiting for the catch. She said, the thing that impressed me as she left, they didn't try and convert me. They didn't share the gospel with me. And they didn't invite me to church. They just wanted to know me. And over the next 22 months she said she went on a journey of discovering what is it that made these people tick. And she read the Bible from cover to cover, as many translations as she could get. Um, and eventually she invited this pastor to go on panels with her at the university and her queer gay and homosexual friends They would always you know, ask her questions about about this person that this minister that she was inviting but she said well i'm i'm very liberal so i don't believe there's any real truth there's his truth my truth and she'd say to them well why are you upset that's his truth and eventually after about 22 months he actually said to her would you like me to come and lecture to your uh, give a lecture i've got a lecture i've lectured at other universities to your english class she said "What on he said, the lecture's called, why every English student should read the Bible. And she went, <laughs> and she said, she started to get angry and defensive. It rose up within her, and she said, there's no way. She thought to herself, there's no way I'm going to let him in front of my class with that. And so instead, she said to him, well, why don't you present the lecture to, 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 to me? So he came over one night with his wife, and he presented this lecture. And he went through all the genres in the Bible, but then he showed from the Bible had how, how the, the redemption story and about how the old testament pointed to the redeemer and the lover of mankind and how the new testament revealed it and she said anger i was getting frustrated because she said this guy was no fool she said i knew he liked me he wasn't angry at me but i could but he obviously knows something and she said i realized at the end of that night that either that's right or i'm wrong which for a liberal to say, to come to the conclusion that there might be an ultimate truth was amazing. So she wrestled with it, and eventually one evening in April 1999, she knelt down in her room. Oh, before then, she said she would go and she would go and she went to go to church like dozens of times, and she'd come out and she said, I'd get, get in my car, she said, and I'd, par- I'd stop before the car park of the church. She said, I, she had to laugh at the thought of all these gay pride rainbow things on stickers on her car, and then all these, uh, all these um, um, yeah, homeschooling stickers and, and Jesus loves you on this. She said, How can I park my car in there? And then she had to laugh at herself. She realized she'd become a stalker Christian, a, Christian, a stalker of Christians. She thought, I'm stalking Christians. This professor, tenured professor, dean of, dean of uh, her department, that one night, she found in the bible the god who loved her and she knelt down and she surrendered she said i surrendered i realized i had to if this was true and i believed it was true i had to surrender everything so she surrendered her pride her her ambition her studies her sexuality and everything to the lordship of jesus christ and now what's that nearly 20 years later she's a happily married Pastor's wife, I think two or three kids homeschooled, all those homeschool stickers that she resented. <laughs> Rosaria uh, Rosaria Butterfield, former professor, specializing in queer theory, hallelujah. And yet God, this re- this virtually retired Presbyterian minister, had a purpose, and God had placed him there, in her path and God had a dream for Rosaria so turn to first Timothy 2 4 because this is God's dream first Timothy 2 4 uh, reading from uh, verse 1 first Timothy 2 verse 1 first of all then I urge that all supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for Kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth god's dream for us is that we would be ministers for his dream that all people would be saved and all people would come to a knowledge of his truth we talked the uh, other day we looked from um, we looked from Acts one, where uh, Luke said uh, to Theophilus, he said, "I have written beforehand, as many others have, about the life of Jesus." And in my former letter to you, Theophilus, he said, "I wrote to you all the things that Jesus began to do, up to his resurrection, and then when he departed, he departed to be." To the, to sit at the right hand of God. What Jesus began to do. The interesting thing there is that Luke knew that the ministry of Jesus had only just begun when he departed. Well, how how is that, guys? For most of us, our Christian life, our old life, ends when we're born again, and our new life is just well, I'm dead. You know, what well, says I've died in Christ, and and we lie around like we're dead. That's it. But it wasn't just Jesus. That rose at the resurrection it was us that rose at the resurrection and his dream has become our dream the works that Jesus began to do and we talked about how Peter you remember after the resurrection Peter was sitting around uh, twiddling his thumbs not wanting what he was going to do and he decided let's go fishing well they all agreed let's go fishing and they spent all night uh, doing nothing and catching nothing, you see, they'd had the resurrection, they'd seen the fireworks, they'd gone off, like the you know the the fireworks at at Christmas Eve in Sydney. And we see them, they go off, and then we think, oh, that's it, that's it, we're done. And Christians think like that. We had the fireworks of our resurrection in Him. Go, that's it, it's all done. And so Peter went fishing, we know that. You know, the thing amazed me about that situation is he worked all night and he must have just been working on one side of the boat and there was just catching no fish, remember? And then, so, and then Jesus came, came to him and he said to him, and he didn't criticize him for going fishing, but he said, Peter, just throw your net on the other side. And he threw it on the other side, there was 153 fish. We're amazed at how he knew there was 153 fish. He must have come and said hi to Jesus and gone back and counted 153 fish. The other thing that amazes me, like that line, you know, between New Zealand and Australia, where there's that line in between, in the Tasman, between Hobart and New Zealand. You know that line? On this side of the line, they're fish. And on that side of the line, they're fish. Well, there was a line under this boat. I was uh, calling this sermon lookout, but I could have called it hidden in plain sight. Because the mission God has for us. 99 times out of 10 is hidden in plain sight and those fish the 153 fish were hidden in plain sight and all they had to do was just change just look differently think differently talk differently think the dream look at the dream speak the dream Jesus said, throw the net on the other side. He threw the. Other, and all of a sudden, the same action, the same life that these people were living, and they thought the fireworks were over, became fruitful. 153, 153 fish. There's another story. I grew up, uh, well, I grew up in the Salvation Army, and then when we moved into Pentecost, it was the early 80s, like 1980, it was in a, Assemblies of God uh, churches. Look at me, look at me. And you know, I started hearing, I had until I got into Pentecost, or 1979 I went to the Billy Graham Crusade in Sydney. Anyone there? Well, normally someone is, yeah. Now where were you sitting? Not anyone there. <laughs> and uh, you know, there was like 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 there, and 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 thousands got saved. And and then when I went into Pentecost, in Assemblies of God Church, that's when I heard for the first time that revival was coming. I didn't know that. I didn't know revival was coming, because I'd just come from a Billy Graham Crusade the year. I thought revival was here you know but i started to hear well revivals coming and that was at AOG, and then we went to uh uh, other places and other churches and we heard there's a great revival great south land of the holy spirit revival's coming i heard you ever heard that revival's coming it's coming revivals coming hear that and then after a few years i just realized that revival if we keep saying revival's coming revival will never be here Uh uh-huh and you know, I sat back and looked because I, I went and spent some time with Archbishop Benson Itahosa in Benin City in Nigeria and, and he had been rescued from a garbage, a garbage tip and, uh, and, and where he'd been abandoned and he had got saved and he met T.L. Osborne and T.L. Osborne inspired him to lift him. T.L. Osborne said, I'm going to give you uh, enough money to build a church and, bonky, and, uh, and um, Itahosa was all excited and T.L. Osborne opened his wallet and Gave him $50. And he said to him, if you can't build a church with $50, you won't be able to build a church. So Idahosa got mad, of course, and gave it away. But the thing about Idahosa is that revival, and, and then the, the village, I, the city I met in Benin City, they had 50 churches in that city, Benin City, and hundreds around the nation. And, and he would go into Muslim cities and the, the, the mayors wouldn't want to give him a venue. And, and one of them, the guy fell off scaffolding dead in front of him. And Edehosa picked him up and raised him. And the Lord raised him from the dead. And of course, then the mayor said, you can have any venue you want. But the thing that impressed me is that revival was never coming for him. Revival was here. And I told you the other week I had a week with Reinhard Bonnke, and you know, like holding a crusade in Nigeria. And he said to me at the end of it, he said, "Grant, he said the big difference. He said the thing is, anyone can get a vision. The thing is, you have to just do it." There was a representative there from Nike, you know, that took that down, wrote that down. Just do it. That sounds good. We we'll use that, yeah. But for him, the revival was never coming. Revival's not coming. Do you know around us then now this is taken uh the, these stats are taken um f- from a survey of beliefs and attitudes about christianity and faith in australia it's a secular survey and uh and these are taken uh all around australia so that includes all the muslim areas and all the you know king's cross and all the areas where where there's no christians in hills and and the sunshine coast we have a much uh, higher percentage of people who, who believe in God, who are Christians. And, and so our, these figures are, are slanted down because these are national figures. But 55% of Australians talk about spirituality regularly or, or occasionally. So it's part of their, uh, their conversation. 55%. So over half the people that you meet walking down the street or at your work, it's an issue for them. And this, this, is of, uh, this is of non-Christians, so there's actually, uh, Australia-wide, there's 43% of, in the last survey in 2017, four, 40, 43% of people believe that they're Christians, so Sunshine Coast, that'd be a fair bit higher. But of those who uh, are, non, are non-Christians, so uh, they include raving atheists and all those sorts of things, um, non-christians openness openness to explore religion 10 uh, percent very often and quite open and quite uh, they're quite open and they're very interested so that's of the remaining in a, in so that doesn't include you understand the 40 to 43 percent who believe they're christians and not christians this is the half who know they're not christians all right and so if it's one in ten of them how much more is it of the 30 or 40 percent that believe they're christians and they're not So one in ten are very open. How many Christians are at your workplace? How many many non-Christians are at your workplace? How many non-Christians do we meet every day? And yet one in ten of them say they're very open. You wouldn't know that, would you? very open and then another 13% you see I don't consider it so that's like a quarter of that that bunch who consider themselves non-christians let alone those who consider themselves Christians and just don't know haven't heard the gospel we've got to think they'd be open so this is them this is what they say this is with not with a move of the Holy Spirit on this survey this is you know this is not like Rosaria Butterfield she'd be one of those ones who said she's unlikely so that's telling me that probably around about a quarter of the people we, we meet each day in our workplace, in the shops, and every, they're actually open. In future weeks, we'll, we'll look at uh, what, what it is that they think they, that they would be open or what they'd be open to hear. But next slide. Thank you. Do you know that uh, 1.5 million, 8% of adults in Australia have never met a Christian? That's 1 in 12, 8% or at least they think they haven't, of Generation Y, born from 1980, one in ten. Well, now you take away the percentage of Christians, which is around about born-again Christians, around about 15%, take away the 40% who who think they're Christians, and you're left with around about uh, two out of ten, Generation Y, that think they don't know any Christians. But we know different. We know there's sleeper christians <laughs> we know there's sleeper christians in their workplace you know the ones in there they're just i've died in christ you know so i'm just going to stay looking dead here <laughs> and it's amazing they think that there never any christians and here we are we've just gone around and we're sneaky christians you like, yeah, you won't be able to tell the difference between me and <laughs> <laughs> and listen it, 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 it gets easier and we'll talk about that next week you're looking forward to it? good, we'll come back because it gets easier alright but, but do you understand two of them two, probably two out of ten every non-Christian especially that generation don't even think they know any Christians I don't know any Christians I don't know what's a Christian look like? You know? do they look like me? they're weird, aren't they? aren't they weird? they've got long hair it's plaited and tied at the back and they wear their scarves or whatever you know? they drive Tarragos and have lots of kids And yet, and yet, now these are attitudes for people who say they don't have faith or they're not Christians. Yet out of all those people, 44% have a positive attitude about your church. Half of them. And then another 40-something percent, what is it, 47%, yeah, well, they're they're, they're fine. Do you know, so that's like 80, uh, close to 90%. Of those people who don't even know there's Christians out there <laughs> and don't call that, that they have a positive attitude about the church. That's not what we, we just get the devils lying to us. They actually think churches contribute. In other words, if they eventually find out somehow that you go to church on Sunday morning, they're going to think, you know, that's all right. I just wonder why you haven't told them for six years. They're going to think, that's all right. Oh, positive. And we think we've got to hide that. Next slide. Now these are, these are stats of people uh, who, again, are non-Christians, all right? Um, how well do you know your local church? Well, 56 percent of them, and close to then over, over, close to uh, over three-quarters of them they, I don't know anything really about my local church. I know there's one on the corner. 56 percent of them don't know anything about it. Well something's wrong here. But how important? do they think Jesus was this is the non-christians guys how so remember these are the ones who don't know any christians but they've got a pretty positive attitude towards the church and how important do they think that, that Christ is in the history of the world well over half of them thinks he's extremely important all right and and then you go up to close to 90% 85% they think well he's significant to them Personally, 31%. Everybody loves Jesus. Even atheists love Jesus. You ever listen to these raving atheists out there? There's hardly any of them can bring themselves to say something bad about Jesus. We've been gifted. Our mission is hiding in plain sight in front of us. This is our harvest field. We're going to look more uh, in following weeks about what you know what what they'd be happy to talk about. But in in John chapter four, and you remember that John chapter four is the story of of uh, Jesus at the uh, the well in Samaria and uh, jesus was had been down south and he said when the pharisees heard that he had been baptizing more people than john he decided to leave and it said he had to go through samaria now i'm not sure why he had to go through samaria because very religious jews of course uh, went around Samaria, so I'm trying to get my left and my right for you. So if this was the coast of the Mediterranean, and uh, Jerusalem's down there, and then Samaria was the, the the land in between where Jerusalem was and where Galilee was, where Jesus came from, and traditional Jews would would go around it. They'd cross over over the uh, the river Jordan, I think, and they'd go up on the eastern side of it, and then they come into Galilee. But Jesus had to go through galilee uh, through samaria for whatever reason maybe he was hiding from the jews and the bible says and wearied from his journey well that's interesting just there isn't it wearied from his journey because here was jesus wearied from his journey and obviously we're often wearied from our journey it says so he rested at the well and he sent at the well uh, uh, where uh, jacob Jacob's Well, and he sent the disciples and any other, other of his entourage in with him into the town to get refreshments. And uh, from the map, it's about one—it's about uh, 1.2 kilometers, uh, about you know 0.75, 0.8 of a mile into the town. So it's probably you know a uh, seven, eight, ten-minute walk for them to go into town. All right, and. Um, and it was the middle of the day. It says about the sixth hour, which is about noon. On the way in to town, you understand, they passed a lady coming out. Now, there's occasions in Genesis where it says the lady's met at the well. I think one of them, who was it that met his wife at the well? We got a theologian here. He'd said. He'd said he'd sit at the well in the evening when the women would come to the well. So it was apparent with this woman. Obviously, we know most of us know she's coming to the well because she didn't want to be with the other women, and we find out why. And she says, "So these disciples, you understand, they're going into I think it's Sitka, They're going in, and and coming out is this woman. Now she would have recognized them as as Jews." And, and I can just see her coming in, coming that way. I can just see her stepping out. I can see her looking down in shame. And she's carrying a pot. and She doesn't want to come out twice to the well. So she's probably got a clay pot. And she's probably got a couple of leather bags on her. And her eyes go down like this as she walks to the well. And she looks away like that because they know who she is. They know her history. They know why she's coming in the middle of the day. And she arrives at the well. And Jesus is sitting down at the side of the well. And Jesus says to her, draw me some water now we think that might be a little bit rude if I just said to someone get me some water you know Um, but for them he was asking her to give hospitality and in fact uh, he would have known and they would have known the stories in the Old Testament when they're looking for wives and they'd ask the one to draw me water and the one who did it and so he was treating her he was signaling her like she was a lady he would have known why she was there in the middle of the day, the shame that was about her, uh, obviously a prostitute or a woman who's ashamed. To, and he said to her, draw me water. And just like Pastor Ken Pastor Ken, and Rosea, he offered to be her friend. He said, you can be my friend. I'm happy. And of course the Jews would have, that, that would have thought, they would have it made them unclean to have water from her. And we're so ingrained in this Old Testament law that we think if we hang around prostitutes or hang around queers or hang around drunkards that somehow we're unclean. Well, that's Old Testament. The New Testament is when we hang around them, they get sanctified. They get set aside for the purposes of God. We walk in there. Guys, Jesus is walking in there. We know if they can get to us, they can get to Jesus. If they can see us, they can see Jesus. We can get our hands on their head. That's Jesus' hands laying on their head. And Jesus wanted to be their friend. And then they start this conversation. And about living water. And there's all sorts of depth of meaning in that that possibly escapes us. But he said, if you asked of me, I would give you water that you would never thirst again. And she said, how can you be? Are you greater than our fathers who dug this well? And then... And, and the prophet, she talked about the Messiah that's coming, and she turned, he turned to her and she said, I am he. And he told her about his. He said to her, Go and get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, You're right. You've been married five times, and the man you're with now is not, is not you're not married to. And at this point, it must have been a fairly long conversation, or maybe she was just leaving town when the disciples came or whatever. But at this point, the disciples came back, and they didn't. They're like us, most unfounded when we see Christians hanging with non-Christians. What are you doing with that? They didn't know what to do. They said the Bible says they didn't know what to say. They, they didn't. Uh, they, one question is phrased, what do you want from him? And the other question is phrased back. And they, and, but the Bible says she, she dropped she left her jug there and she went into town. Why would she leave her jug and go into town? There's going to be two trips out that she's got to do. And then Jesus started this conversation with his disciples and they said, they said to him, eat some food. He said, I have food to eat, which you know not of and it's to do the will of my father. It's an interesting phrase that. I bet you they're thinking, is there some takeaway around where we have a mint? Where's the Kentucky drive through? We missed the Kentucky drive through. Why do you send us into town when McDonald's is down the road? He's got food to eat you know nothing of. And it was the same thing that he said to Peter. You know, the will that God has for us very often is hidden, most times, 99 times out of 10, is hidden in plain sight. And they asked him about it. And he said to them, he said them two things. He said two things that we need to do he said first of all he said change what you say He said, guys you've walked past this woman he said you've gone into town the mission field is there he said you've got a saying which says uh that says there's four months to the harvest another translation says do not say there's four months to the harvest that might have been probably that's probably what the guy said when the wife said go and get some, go and do some work you know go and earn some money and they'd sit there and say well, there's four months to the harvest yet as that means when we don't take is the time's not right, it's like us saying revival's coming. There's four months, revival's coming. Well, there's always four months to the harvest, you never get to the harvest. And Jesus said to them, Don't say there's four months to the harvest, don't say one day I might open up and share the gospel, or one day where I work, they're going to be open for them. Jesus said, No, he said, Look. The fields are white under harvest. He said to them, turn round and look. And at this stage, you understand, she's on her way back because she'd left a pot there. She's got to come back for a pot. But she'd been into town and she'd told everyone what this, <laughs> this, come and see this man who told me everything I've done. And you can see all the guys can tell you, oh, no. <laughs> can this be true? And the wife said, you better get out there and see. And they came up. They came marching out to them. This is a heathen, a heathen town. These are not the ones that are the 10% that are very open. These are the ones that hated the Jews. And yet a little act of friendship. Everyone, the greatest desire of our heart, as we know, is to be known and to be loved. And we tell, we can tell, we tell non-Christians, God loves you, but we don't want to know you. Hello? You know, well, he won't know me if you don't, he won't love me if you knew me. And Rosia Butterfield spent 22 months finding out that this retired, semi-retired Presbyterian minister still loved her, still cared about her, respected her. She said, the thing that that amazed me is that he actually valued, he knew that I had considered opinions and he valued them and he didn't put them down. And Jesus didn't put this woman down. And he said to the disciples, look up. He said, look up. And they probably looked up where? Like this. And looked around, and there she was, coming back. He said, do not say four months to the harvest. That tells me this, guys. He said, and look up. That tells me this, Jesus telling his disciples that revival, that the salvation of our friends, of our neighbors, of our workplaces, of the people we're with day by day, is hidden in plain sight. And what changes is the way we look at them and the way we talk about them and to realize to understand the way we look at ourselves to understand if, if if we walk in when we walk into work when we walk into shop that's jesus that walked in jesus went back to the father he sent the holy spirit he said it's good for you that i send the holy spirit so the holy spirit can with, be with you he'll He'll lead you and he'll guide you and the fire started and all of a sudden there's 120 in the upper room, the, the, the little, little representations of God and Jesus going out and then there was 5,000 and it went and like that, that, there. And the fireworks just poof, you can see them, you know. Philip and the Ethiopian, poof, the fireworks go off again. We need to change the way we look at our world and to change the way we look at ourselves and we look at the world and we can say, God so loved them. And He has prepared wonderful works in place, they're they're, them. And even in the natural, we know that like probably half of the non Christians are very open to hear. Very open. And if they can get to us, they can get to Jesus. If they can see us, they can see Jesus. And I I don't care how long you've been saved. But that woman was, you know, she wasn't even saved. (laughs) She wasn't even born again. Like, how many minutes? Ten minutes? And she's gone back and evangelized to the whole town. And God invests in you. He's more interested in them getting saved than we are. And it says in Ephesians 2:10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for these good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should work in them. That word we learned last week, the word prepared means that he has already made the investment and put the physical things into place, ready. How do we find them? Walk in them. His dream's our dream, his call's our call. Luke chapter 4, Jesus opened the book. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, healing to the sick, prosperity to the poor, those who are downtrodden, set free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then the Bible says he closed it. It doesn't say he closed the book. And you know, if you go and read where that comes from, it says after that, the day of judgment. And he closed that book. He said, "This." He said, this now is a ministry of grace judgment's coming, but now's the time for people to turn to Jesus. If they can see you, if they can see you, they can see Jesus. Praise God. Every head bowed every your Thank you for listening. We trust that you've been encouraged by the message. Please consider leaving a review and subscribing to our new content. For more information